0: Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Thursday, June 9th, 2011. We're delighted to have you here. We did have to delay just a bit because there was a mistake in the URL that was listed for this event in the Learn Central Room, and we apologize. But they are now notified and hopefully should be coming in. Troy, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much, Steve. I really appreciate your show and the opportunity to uh, talk with you tonight. So our guest is Troy Hicks, a co-author of a book called Because Digital Writing Matters and the author of the Digital Writing Workshop. We appreciate the support uh, from Wimba and Illuminate, now known as Blackboard Collaborate, for the Future of Education show. Uh, also acknowledge my Web 2.0 Labs project at web20labs.com. Uh, I am now my, the sponsor of my own show. We did announce this week the new Teacher 2.0, 2.0 uh, network. That's teacher20.com. This is a Ning uh, community just for educators to talk about their personal and professional growth rather than the use of Web 2.0 in the classroom, but focusing on the use of those tools for personal and professional growth. I think it's a cool idea. We've had a lot of uh, fun discussions already starting there. If you're in the Sacramento area, I'm actually going to do a free workshop next Friday, a week from tomorrow, uh, uh, and all day, it was 9 to 3 workshop on Teacher 2.0, and the ideas of uh, how you can use Web 2.0 tools for yourself, um, and there's more information on that at teacher20.com. Coming up this month is ISD, of course. Many of us are going to be there, many of us wish we could be there. If you're not going to be there, hopefully there are things that we're doing that will make a difference for you. If you are going to be there, the all-day Saturday Con is a blast. It's free, it's supported by ISTE. We really appreciate that support, and you do not need to be attending ISTE to come. It's Saturday, June 25th from 8 to 5. It is an unconference format. We'll create the agenda for the day at the beginning of the day. It's a great day of conversation. We have some fun activities planned. If you are going to be at ISTI, please come by the Bloggers Cafe, a terrific area just for hanging out and having conversations. And if you've never presented at ISTI, would like to present, uh, or if you've presented and just have something new to say, you can actually sign up to present at ISTI at ISTE Unplugged. We have a presentation area, microphone, Promethean board, uh, and we will be streaming all of these out. So it's ISTEUnplugged.com. If you're going to attend and you would like to speak, please feel free to sign up there. If you're not able to attend, just but want to watch some fun content, uh, from Monday through Wednesday, during all the concurrent session times, we will be streaming live. Actually, my 13-year-old daughter will be in charge of that. So her name is Caroline. She's going to be streaming those events for us. Coming up in November, it is the second Global Education Conference, November 14th to 18th, five days, 24 hours a day. Time zones. Every time zone imaginable, it turns out there are over 30 some odd time zones. Um, a lot of fun, just a blast, free. We'll be doing a call for presentations later this month or early in July. Hope that you'll join us for that. Coming up next week on the future of education, Larry Ferlazzo talks about helping students motivate themselves, his new book. Denise Pope from Stanford will talk about her book, Doing School. Uh, many of you probably saw Denise in uh, Race to Nowhere. Um, And she was quoted and interviewed quite a bit in that movie. Uh, The week after that, Sandy Hirsch will talk about libraries and digital literacy, and we will be announcing a Library 2.0 virtual conference, uh, a worldwide free conference on uh, the future of libraries. and That's going to be November 2nd and 3rd. The the official announcement will come out um, when Sandy comes on the show. She's at San Jose State University's library program, the largest in the world, and she's going to be co-chair of that event. Uh, Carol Black talks about her school or her movie Schooling the World, uh, a look at uh, the colonial model of schooling and its impact in northern India. Very interesting conversation to be had there, and and much more coming up ahead, including Howard Gardner, who's just committed for September 13th. If you've missed the show, they are all recorded, both in full Luminate versions and in MP3 um, portable audio formats as well. Just go to futureofeducation.com and look for the past uh, shows there. Or on the left-hand side, you'll find direct links to the MP3s. Uh, Tuesday, we had the authors from Invisible Gorilla on. Uh, not my best interview, <laughs> but they did well. And uh, it's still a fascinating topic, that's one that's absorbing me to no end. And that is the the, the cognitive channels or limitations that our, that our brains um, Sort of are constrained by, and what that may mean for teaching, and what it may mean for policy as well. So, lots of fun. I hope you'll um, consider listening to that one, or any of the others, uh, including. I'm sorry, I took your base chat privilege away. From me to do that, including. Um, Uh, Cal Newport uh, on the high school superstar, and and again, uh, much deeper than the title would suggest. Uh, Lots more there and hope there's something of fun. This session will be recorded and will be available later tonight. If this is your first time in Illuminate, thanks so much for coming. Uh, We'll be calling it Blackboard Collaborate uh, later this summer when the new version comes out. Uh, This is a participatory or participative environment and so there are a number of ways to do that. The first of which is that at the bottom of your participant window you'll see some emoticons. You can click on the smiley face or the clapping hand. There is a, a confused look and a thumbs down. We don't expect you to use that a lot. The larger icon, the hand with the green up arrow, will allow you to raise your hand and ask Troy a question as we move to Q&A a little bit later in the show. If you If you don't know this trick already, of the Wide Layout, go up to View Layouts and switch yourself to the Wide Layout. It makes it much easier to see the chat in a session of this size. So that's uh, in your menu, View, then Layouts, and then Wide Layout. So right now we're going to give you a chance to let us know where you're participating from. So the live audience here, look for the wand to the left of the map. That's the stick with the red star. Click on that and then click on the map and it will let us know roughly where you're participating from. And then it's fun to have you shout out. Yes, I'm sorry, Lisa. <laughs> I make that mistake. Nauseated and nauseous as well. i like t- taking the wrong turn on a road. So fun to have you here, Lansing, Michigan, New York City, Canton, Georgia, Indianapolis, Philadelphia. Oh, my goodness, severe storms and hail. Albany, Buffalo, Illinois, Phoenix, Arizona, Palo Alto, Alexandria, Virginia, Pensacola, Florida, Phoenix, Manila, nice to have you here, Bill, Honolulu, Prince Edward Island, Springville, Utah, Troy, New York, middle of nowhere, Maine, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, Long Island, Michigan, Columbus, Ohio, Sao Paulo, Brazil. Welcome, Singapore. I will be going to Singapore at the beginning of September if anybody's in that area, I'm probably going to Vietnam, Cambodia, and, um, oh, Malaysia at the same time. I uh, would love to hear from anybody that would like to organize any kind of an event there uh, first half of September. Dublin, Ohio, New Zealand, Orange County, what a good group tonight. Wherever you're listening from, we sure appreciate it if you're listening to the recording. Thanks for taking the time to do so so troy i have to i have to use i have to give a little bit of a caveat here, I am not an in the classroom teacher, and so I want to be really careful about the direction that I steer this conversation uh, recognizing my own limitations there but I thought this was really, really fascinating material. Can you give me a little bit of your history and background and then kind of weave into that where the two books take place?
1: Yeah, I would like to do that in fact because um The digital writing workshop was really born of the idea of me as a writing teacher, and uh, I began my career as a middle school writing teacher, seventh and eighth grade. Um, I still have my heart in middle school, although I will be honest that I don't miss the piles of papers to bring home to grade every night, even though they'd be on Google Docs now. But uh, I spent a few years in middle school. teaching uh, language arts trying to incorporate computer technology and it seems kind of odd to say it now but that was like right at the birth of the internet age you know right in the late 90s early 2000s when schools were getting wired and whatnot but I went back um, to graduate school studied at Michigan State uh, worked in the Writing Center and for the Red Cedar Writing Project and that's how I got connected with the National Writing Project and I was learning more about digital writing so that writing workshop approach that um, has really um, grown over the past 20, 30 years from you know the greats like Donald Graves and Donald Murray and Lucy Calkins and Nancy Atwell and more than I can name, blended with these new theories about computers and composition and visual rhetoric and design and hypertext and all these things that fall under that category of digital writing. Um, I just kind of started thinking my first part of my career as a classroom teacher, second part of my career as a graduate student and a professional development coordinator and started meshing them together and thus was
0: born the digital writing workshop. So I, I, I get to speak at a fair number of conferences or, or attend and listen to others speak and it's really interesting to me that it feels as like there's almost always someone in the audience who really is unhappy with the direction of digital writing, um, and that they feel a deep sense of loss. Do you encounter that? Yeah, I think
1: that there's definitely this sense that you have to do an either or. Like if I give up my favorite pen and my favorite journal, you know, in in lieu of an iPhone or a, you know, a tablet or something like that. And one of the points that we try to make, um, my advisor and colleague and friend Danielle DeVos made this point early when we were writing because digital writing matters. She was like, well, writing has always been digital and quite literally waved her fingers in front of us. And we all kind of sat there and went, indeed, (laughs) really it has. So I, I don't think that, um, we have to say that we're giving something up. I, I think there are times and I, I do this myself, there are times where I'd much prefer to write in my journal than sit down at a keyboard. But I also know, um, sitting at a keyboard or sometimes picking up a stylus or using a mouse or even paint and crayons and whatever else, you know, we're we're engaged in writing in a lot of different ways and so yeah, I
0: think there is always
1: some element of saying you know, we're losing something, if we give this up, you know, there was this thing about losing the element of reading a book, but, you know, e-book sales just outpaced, you know, regular book sales, and I think that, um, you know, the research on writing is showing the same, that most of the time teens are using their cell phones to text and post to social networks, and even though they don't think that it's necessarily writing, it is, and it's leaving a record for them, so, you know, I understand that, and I, I certainly don't uh, want anybody to give up the writing practices that they love and appreciate, but uh, also hope that they
0: can understand their new ways to express themselves. Thanks for remembering to turn your mic off. It does help me to, to know you finished answering the question. So Steve at Castilea School says, it's a false dichotomy, traditional versus digital writing. What's interesting about that is, and you're mentioning of the e-books, I actually think that I do read differently. And I've noticed there are certain books I like reading on an e-book reader and certain books I really want to have the physical copy for. Um, uh, It does feel as though there's been a a dramatic change, though. So how do you define digital writing? and, And in what ways does it represent a shift in how we actually are communicating? Right. I really appreciate that
1: question. And and just before I answer and talk about those different types of digital writing, I think that it's really important to think about that e-book experience and and what is that going to mean for our students today who are reading e-books, but more importantly are writing e-books, you know, what does it mean to put in links and embedded videos and things like that. But um, when I define digital writing, when I when I think about it, I, and I'm sure that any time you put something in the categories, you can poke holes in it and think of other things, but I try to generally think of three things. The first type of digital writing that I think of are texts that are put online either through blogs or web pages, or even now through Twitter and Facebook and microblogging or discussion forums, generally can include hyperlinks and you know embedding images and things like that. So you, you have that kind of uh, you know, traditional sit down at the keyboard and type it, but now you can share it with the world. The second type of digital writing that I, I think of as a broad category would be things that are truly um, born digital and collaborative. Uh, using Google Docs or other collaborative word processors, wikis, um, other types of spaces where um, people are either creating a single authored text and inviting comments and revision, or they're actually engaged in some genuinely collaborative uh, process where um, the, the sum is really greater than the individual parts that go into it. And then the third kind of category that I would see is multimedia, anything to do with composing audio, visual, hypertext, these types of things where um, you can uh, take different types of media and put them together to create a message that you otherwise wouldn't have been able to create with the one media alone. So those are the three broad categories I see for
0: digital writing. So you mentioned in one of the books, I can't remember which, but, but I, this occurs a fair amount, that, the, that there is this paradox that there's um, more actual writing, but the students don't see it as formal writing. And it's viewed, I've read people who've said it's actually improving writing, and I've talked to other people who feel like there's this substantial decrease in writing capability or skill because of texting. How do you kind of resolve that paradox? Yeah, I think that's a really good paradox
1: to unpack a little bit. Um, I am not a linguist and I don't pretend to be a linguist, but what I'm coming to understand about the linguistic studies of texting and IM types of language is that it's actually a, a phonetically more complicated and kind of a higher level thinking that goes into that. So it actually take some kind of thinking process to do GR number eight and have that be great and create that message and then have someone interpret it and then write back in a different way with that abbreviated type of shorthand, which, by the way, we've always been using abbreviated shorthand and those types of things to communicate our messages, especially with uh, groups of people, either professional or personal, that we have those types of um you know, relationships with. And then, of course, the other part of that is just school writing in general. There's always been this kind of dichotomy where people say, well, our kids can't write. Well, they can. Uh, and they choose to, and sometimes, but then in school they're asked to do a certain kind of writing, and uh, for better or for worse, and I, I don't need to debate the five-paragraph essay right now, but just to say that there are certain types of expectations in academic writing that if we don't teach students how to do them, then of course they're not going to be able to do them. I mean, our really skilled students who are going to be able to read academic texts and model and mimic them and create their own texts, but not all students can do that, and that's why they go to school, to understand that kind of writing. So, and so some ways I really get a little defensive when people kind of go to that point of saying, well, the texting's ruining their grammar, and kids these days can't write. And uh, I, I just don't think that those arguments are very valid. I think that that's always been the case, it always will be the case, and we can really start to talk more productively
0: about how to do better writing instruction. I know my own children do an incredible amount of writing. Uh, in all of these forms. Uh, And then I look at my own work right now, and I'm writing way more than I ever have. Um, But I'm never actually writing a five-paragraph essay. So how do you identify what kinds of writing now are important to be teaching? Well, that's a a kind of a double-edged question too, of course,
1: because common core standards would tell you that there are three types, text types, that are um, really important to be writing, argumentative, and informational, and narrative. And of the three of those, the argumentative is certainly more privileged, as that will most likely be the one on the test. But for me, I really like to take a genre-based approach. Um, That's been a a trend in writing instruction for a number of years, Um, many people, Debbie Dean, Looked at genre theory quite a bit, and more recently, uh, Kathy Fleischer and Sarah Andrew Vaughn have a book called *The Unfamiliar Genre Project* where they help students really unpack the genre and explore it from a writer's perspective and say what is it that we're supposed to be doing with this genre who are we writing to how does this type of writing work and I think we can do the same types of things with digital writing you know why is it that we would for instance want to present an idea in the form of a web page as compared to a series of twitter messages as compared to a powerpoint presentation as compared to a short digital video what are the things that we might want to say and do that these different media allow us to say or do. And I think that, um, you know, if we look at it from that kind of genre rhetorical approach, then we can, you know, really open up the conversations about writing.
0: So uh, in, uh, at one point there's a, a discussion about uh, two different mindsets. One being the tools are integrated in sort of the current teaching mode and others that the tools are actually have changed the larger landscape. It sure feels as though, as you begin to talk about that, that you're, that you're looking at what's happened with networked computers and technology over the last several years as sort of dramatically changing uh, the world. Would that be accurate? I think so, yeah.
1: I I am of the same mindset, you know, um there's the New Literacies book by um Colin Lancashire and Michelle Noble and they actually talk about mindsets kind of the more traditional and industrial mindset that values production and um, you know really you know looks as the sole individual working on this and that and the other thing but as part of this scheme and then there's the newer mindset that embraces new literacies and technologies and says uh, we're able to People work socially and collaboratively and produce things and we have uh, this Wikipedia, you know, a wikified kind of knowledge base where we all think we can contribute and understand and come to know things in different ways. And so I I think that, um, you know, the tools definitely change the writing. I mean, I've said that many times, the shape of writing has changed. Um, The purposes and audiences you know they haven't necessarily changed we're still trying to write to show our teachers that we can do academic work we're still trying in the workplace to show our boss that we can be clear and concise but the tools are are, are changing that process and I, I think it's very intricately interwoven and it's it's tough to say one without the other so it, it really does um make a difference where you're writing and how you're writing. I mean, I compose messages quite differently when I'm sitting on my iPhone and using my thumbs and trying to get a quick email as compared to the longer, more thought out piece that I would you know, either pull out the Bluetooth keyboard for or wait until I got back to my laptop. So the, the space and the tools definitely um, do make a difference.
0: So it occurred to me that there were two other things that sort of dramatically played into this for me. The first was that students actually have increased influence through their writing. Meaning when I was writing in my K to 12 experience and even in my college experience, I wasn't actually in a position to to have my writing change things. But it feels as though students are writing things now that can actually have an influence in larger social cultural uh, activities. Um, how does that impact how you think about teaching Digital writing. Well, I think that question just came up in the chat room too. You know, does it allow
1: students to um, change their voice? Or uh, the best way I heard uh, a teacher describe this once uh, was to describe it as it amplifying their voice. And I think that um, that's the same thing. You know, someone that. Uh, put earlier in the the, um, chat while we were talking about the different types of digital writing, you know, if we ask students to do the same kind of book report, but we just ask them to put it on a blog, are we really engaging them in 21st century learning and writing? And I I don't think that we are. And so if we really want them to have voice and really take a stance in their writing, we have to invite them to do the kinds of active inquiry um, that we know makes good writers. I mean, the National Writing Project and the National Council of Teachers of English and other organizations have been doing studies on what really motivates and affects uh, writers and what helps them develop their voice. And someone a little bit earlier in the chat, too, had said, is there a digital equivalent of the five-paragraph essay? And I'm afraid that there there might start to be. I I don't know that I would say there is definitely one thing out there, but I I do know, you know, for doing the same type of thing where we've asked students to, you know, okay, here's this text, write a response to it, but we're going to put it on our blog and then pretend that that's going to necessarily make it authentic, then we're really fooling ourselves. And that's not the type of digital writing that we want our students to do.
0: So this is intriguing to me because I want to make a distinction between voice and influence. And I'm not sure it's legitimate. But I'm increasingly thinking about Um, the capabilities of, say, teenagers or adolescents and their ability not just to have an authentic audience but to actually begin to do things that change uh, the world or change perspectives on things. And I know that's a little bit nuanced, but are you watching uh, certain places where digital writing is taking place where the ability for the students to actually be authentic change makers Uh, would change how we would think about uh, the importance of their writing. I think any time you give students the opportunity to make real and substantive change that you're
1: going to find that you know, their expression is going to be that much more powerful. I just saw that someone put um, a link to the Digital Is uh, website from the National Writing Project, which has a number of examples on there where um, teenagers become engaged in social justice and civic action types of projects. Um, they do oral histories of their families and immigration stories. They um, work together to choose a service learning project. They um, you know, somehow identify a cause in their community that they want to take up. And within that context, they then do all those traditional types of academic writing that they have to do. We're going to go do some research in the library with books and magazines and encyclopedias, but we're also going to go online and we're going to go into our community and we're going to film and we're going to record and so forth. And I I think they do see that their voice improves because they're passionate about it and their influence is real because it's happening right in front of them. You know, it it used to be with writing workshop models that, you know, we would have the author's chair and students would sit there once a week or once a month or whatever and then we publish an anthology and maybe if we got lucky it would get put in the the school library or in a letter to the newspaper, uh, but most of the time it just ended up on the cork board in the classroom or on the refrigerator at home. And now we really do have the opportunity to help students share their writing in a variety of spaces. Trouble is, we can have students share their writing in this variety of spaces, but it's like the tree falling in the forest. Um, If nobody's there to listen and respond, then does it really matter that they've done that in the first place so digital writing is not only about the skills and the voice and like getting the kids to actually do the writing but also teaching them how to be good thoughtful responders and participate in an online community and so
0: it is it's a very
1: nuanced piece and kids are figuring this out for themselves on twitter and facebook and someone in here has been mentioning about you know the arab spring and the the kind of revolution that's been afoot because of social media and you know, Dana Boyd and some of the hanging out, messing around, geeking out types of studies have shown that um, kids find this very powerful. And uh, so the question is, how are we going to use it in school um, to enact some really substantive change to writing instruction?
0: Boy, that just opens up a whole can of questions. But before we go there, the second interesting piece for me on this was the degree to which certain tools which are not necessarily writing tools, have changed my writing. So I'm thinking of Google Docs and uh, Evernote. And in particular, Evernote has become kind of a way for me to structure a lot of my thinking and writing, um, almost kind of like a mind mapping program would. To what degree are the tools kind of driving shifts in how we create?
1: I think that's a wonderful question. Um, A few years ago, our department chair was sent a a request by um, a high school English teacher, I assume an alumni, who basically asked, "Well, do we expect our the seniors entering freshman comp to still use three by five note cards?" And this was right about the time Zotero came out, and obviously the height of Delicious and Digo and social bookmarking and things like that. And I wrote a pretty long blog post. Uh, well, it was an email to this uh, this teacher originally, but then I turned it into a blog post where I basically said, like, why are you using 3x5 cards anymore? I mean, the tools are out there. The opportunities exist. We can teach kids to be productive, thoughtful, um, really careful, good researchers. They can document their sources. We can get away from this. Where did you find it? Oh, I found it on Google. Well, no, not really. You actually found it through Google, but you didn't cite your sword, da-da-da-da-da, plagiarism. All these issues, if we really take the time and effort and energy, and then people say, well, it takes time and effort and energy, but then it's that old adage of you're either going to do it now or you're going to do it later. So if you spend the time and invest it now, and teach students how to thoughtfully use Google Docs, how to thoughtfully use social bookmarking to keep track of their sources, how to thoughtfully use Evernote to keep track of their ideas and keywords and tags and you know, mod- you know, know, mark up their PDFs and save those quotes where they can use them later. If we take the time to do that now in the process, then they're gonna become better
0: writers later and it's not superfluous to ask students to do those types of things. I, we all know that change takes time and there are times when slow change is good and other times when there's disruptive change. But it's so interesting to hear you talk because I think even a year or two ago there would have been significantly more pushback to the sense that th- these tools are really important because they restructure a lot of the acts of creation and and ultimately the value of the creation. Um, have you? Noticed the change in how teachers and or administrators have been responding to this message and has it been slow, fast, medium? Well, with everything in education, I think it's been slower <laughs>
1: than what we would like, even though it's been fast in some areas. I, I was actually talking with some colleagues about my work doing professional development. You know, I, I've had the good fortune of having good mentors through my entire career and I've, you know, literally been presenting since my first few months as an intern, and as I've continued to more recently, you know, direct the writing project and make arrangements with schools and intermediate school districts and conferences and so forth, Um, you know, it used to be that even four or five years ago when someone would ask me to do a workshop and I would have to kind of go through this like checklist, like, well, there's going to be laptops, right? Okay, yeah, all right, and there's gonna be Wi-Fi. No, okay, could you turn the Wi-Fi on that day? Okay, that'd be great, and you're gonna make sure that people have the filters turned off so we can download Firefox or whatever we need. And I would say in the last year or so, That is not where the conversation begins anymore. It's almost an assumption like, oh, yes. And I don't know if it's because I'm the digital guy or because this really is what's happening in schools more broadly, but there's just this assumption that um, people are going to show up with their laptops, the internet's going to be turned on, they're going to have the bandwidth to handle it, and we're going to start doing digital writing right away. And so I I, I recognize that there's still major disparities in this country um, in different places. Um, I guess what I'm seeing more and more is that people are coming with that mindset that we're going to engage in the technology in productive ways um, to the degree that we have it, and unfortunately not everybody has it still. So um, I don't know that the adoption has been fast, slow, or medium, um, but it's, uh, it is happening slowly but surely.
0: I think that mirrors my own experiences. I was at the COSIN conference this year on the pre-conference all-day session with international uh, leaders, and I felt very much that there had been a significant change. Um, having been involved in the open source software movement and having never felt that change, it's interesting to be involved in sort of the Web 2.0 uh, collaborative social media movement and feeling like people are getting it, that, that uh, there doesn't have to be the explanation, that, that we are, um, people are moving toward that. I want to ask you about collaboration because I personally actually have mixed feelings about sometimes what I see being expressed about collaboration. I'm certainly a highly collaborative person and I really value it, but I often will see collaborative projects that feel to me as though they're missing something. How do you balance um, collaboration that uh, that is constructive and healthy and collaboration that's, um, that's not? How, what, how do you uh, figure out which camp something falls into?
1: Right. Well, one of the ways that I've always tried to think about that is to say, are we truly asking students to do something collaborative where the sum is greater than the parts, as I was alluding to earlier with the, the particular kind of digital writing, or are we just asking them to be cooperative and pretending that that's collaboration. So, oh, let's all get in a group and work on this thing. And I, I am guilty of this in my own teaching. I still am today. I, you know, I try projects with my undergraduates sometimes, and I realize that I did not structure them properly. So, part of it's a pedagogy question, and how is it that we're going about setting up those types of projects? And then the second component of that and what I think you're getting at more is like well what are the tools that are available what is the support that we offer what are our expectations so um, I think what's really interesting about the tools though is that when you use something like Google Docs or Wiki you can quite literally see what everyone has contributed um, You know, one of my the popular questions I get at workshops is, well, how do you know that students really did it? And I'll say, well, let's take a look at this wiki page that we've all been collaborating on for the last half hour. And I pull up the history and look at the revisions, and people go, oh, my gosh. And it's even more, you know, transparent in Google Docs. And so I, I think that helping our colleagues understand... You know what is it that we're really asking them to do you know because there's always been the idea that well we're going to read each other's papers and give feedback and that's peer response and kids go oh yeah it looks good okay thanks it looks good check 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 the rubric's done but if we are really trying to get them engaged in a project that's meaningful purposeful then they're going to collaborate and this isn't to say that they should give up all traditional forms of academic writing I I am by no means saying that we should not, we should stop teaching kids how to write persuasive essays because I think that's an important skill as an academic and something that they should gain from their education and useful for them to understand politics and the news and everything. But I also think we could offer them more opportunities to collaborate
0: in these really positive ways. So what are some of the new practices uh, in, in your professional development work? What are you focusing on? Well, I would say one of the main um, practices
1: is just this notion of collaborative workspace. Um, at our writing project, Chippewa River Writing Project at Central Michigan, you know, in our summer institute for teachers, we just kind of jump in with the expectation that they are going to learn how to compose on a wiki and with Google Docs. And we use um, those two digital writing tools for a number of different purposes, everything from presenting their personal and professional writing to collaboratively writing responses to other teaching demonstrations. To Um, preparing final projects and so forth. And and I think that it's just a a matter of like, you know, setting that bar and saying these are the places that we're going to jump in. Um, I would say creating multimedia is becoming more and more popular as you have online services that allow you to um, edit audio and video and you're not caught between platforms or on different computers and forgetting if you save the audio file on your jump drive and this and that. Um, And the Creative Commons announcement by YouTube this past week was pretty interesting, too. So there's yet another way to remix and repurpose materials. Um, I think that uh, Twitter, uh, for educators, uh, more and more as I continue to talk with people and they at least have a notion of what Twitter is, and I had gone to do one workshop a couple months ago and we just kind of threw the agenda out the window and we all signed on or signed up for Twitter. And I was teaching them about hashtags and following and at replies, and we started talking about the kind of discussions, you know, the ways people engage in discussions on Twitter and citing each other and so forth. So it turned into this really great Englishy kind of conversation all about Twitter. So those are some of the things that I see happening um, as general writing trends. <laughs>
0: Uh, there's a phrase in the book, a healthy digital writing ecology, and and I kept thinking about uh, John Seely Brown and sort of the studio learning environment. Um, does that kind of studio environment play a role in how you think we should be teaching digital writing? Well, absolutely. I, I think that there's the notion about the writing workshop, and it's
1: that there's this kind of creative, structured space, structured but flexible space. Um, You know, Katie Woodray has a really great kind of scene that she paints at the beginning of one of her books about the writing workshop where she's talking about this classroom of fourth graders, and these three students are working on this, and these two students are working on this peer response, and this other student's conferring with the teacher, and oh yeah, then there's those two kids over in the corner who are talking about what the soccer game on Saturday, and there's always that opportunity for kids to get off task, yet... We also know that we have to provide them with opportunities to play, and I, I think that you know a number of the people that you've had on the show, like Sir Ken Robinson, for one, you know, talk about the the ways in which we have to provide spaces for play. So um, having that workshop approach, this writing workshop approach that teachers know and understand, and helping guide students through the writing process, and then saying, how can we layer in these digital tools? Someone had written earlier in the chat about, well, you know, what's the argument to make here when everyone thinks. Those kids are just blogging. Well, show them what the blogging is doing. Show them how the interactions are happening. Show them, um, you know, administrators and tech directors and parents, what, what are the, the ways in which children are growing and becoming better readers and writers. And will there be some off-task behavior? Sure. Uh, will there be some time where there's just play? Yeah, but that actually, you know, inspires creativity and leads to new ideas. And so, yeah, that studio
0: workshop approach is a, a really smart one. So we're going to shift toward the Q&A. I have to apologize. It's very hard for me to conduct the interview and watch the chat closely enough to pull out uh, questions. So if you put a question in the chat for Troy and um, you'd you'd like him to address it specifically, can I get you to post that again? And you can always scroll up and copy it uh, if you have to type it out. Fully, you can also raise your hand by using the icon at the bottom of your participant window. It's the hand with the green up arrow, and you can raise your hand and take the microphone and and ask Troy a question. So, um, what are the biggest challenges right now? The biggest challenges, I think, it's just access.
1: I, I, I'm at the same time I'm becoming more and more impatient with the questions that people say, well what if we don't have enough computers and what if I live in a rural area and what if uh, you know we're dealing with poverty and I, I understand those questions and on the one hand I want to say I sympathize and on the other hand I want to say we just need to move forward how can we help what can we do we we have to figure out what to, what to say or do but the fact of the matter is I mean the Pew Internet research center said 93% of teens are online in one way shape or form. We know that there are increasing numbers of mobile devices in the world and that uh, our teenagers are ones using them in a lot of cases. And so, you know, you have uh, people trying to make the case for mobile devices and learning while at the same time it seems like there's um, you know, schools are still saying no. You know, there's a school I was working with recently this year who had outfitted their whole school for Wi-Fi, but um, did not buy any laptop carts or anything like that. And when one of the teachers started putting together a grant proposal for tablets, um, basically told them, no, no, don't bother. We're not going to support those right now. And I, I just, I really don't know what else we need to do, because is there going to be cyberbullying? Yes, but there's always been bullying on school buses and playgrounds and locker rooms and that's terrible and we do what we can to help deal with that both online and face to face and is there always going to be poverty? Yes, there is and that's terrible Um, and we do what we can to deal with that but the fact is the majority of our kids are online, and how are we as educators helping them understand who they are as readers and writers and you know, literate, ethical people in the world? Uh, this is our charge. This is what we need to do, and that's why I think it's so important that we do it.
0: It is interesting to watch how uh, things happen that kind of take us a little off guard, and may or may not answer some of these challenges. But certainly it feels to me as though we're increasingly recognizing the value of students bringing their own devices versus uh, issuing the exact same device to everybody. And we're seeing reports of, sort of widespread cell phone um, use, even in families that have um, financial struggles, um, which doesn't mean we, we don't have a responsibility to provide, but it also feels as though that world is shifting quickly. Uh, we had a question, uh, Richard asked, isn't there a blur between digital writing and sharing digital media such as in tweets and texting?
1: I would actually classify all of that as digital writing. I mean, I think one of the points that we make in the book, because digital writing matters, we say that um, actually it's digital once it becomes networked. Like you can sit on your own standalone computer and compose a text, and that, that's important. And it was, you know, for many years to be able to do that. But what one of the hallmarks of where we're at right now is the fact that things can be networked and shared so incredibly quickly. And so I think that um, what we really, you know, really want to emphasize is the fact that because it's networked, we have these opportunities to communicate. Now, I I don't know if the story is real or if it was just an anecdote someone shared with me, but you know, someone, a teacher at one point you know, said, you, know, you don't ask the question that you can find the answer for on Google, and so he asked the question and said to his class, you know, look, um, you, you can text, you can figure out any way, and bonus points for someone who gets the, the answer from someone from a different country. So um, you know, I really do think it's um, important
0: to help kids understand how to use these devices in really productive ways. Richard followed up, uh, although the general group can't see it because he messaged us directly, but that in Africa, it's common for a bunch of kids to share one cell phone or laptop. And there is a new, well, within the last year, Sugata Mitra video from Ted that that addresses that. And uh, I think in very interesting ways, challenges our assumptions about learning. You had another question from Chris. And again, if you have a question, please feel free to put it in the chat or to raise your hand. That's the hand icon with a green up arrow. Chris said, do you think we need separate scope and sequences for blogging, or can we teach students to write in the various modes, persuasive, etc and layer on the need to address audience purpose, and how writing for the public changes that? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I think that we can have
1: our students blog in a variety of different genres and different purposes. Um, We don't necessarily want to just say that blogging is reserved for this or this. And um, I think that there, there are a number of ways that we can go about presenting those types of opportunities to students. And what I'm really worried about is, like, saying that, okay, well, here's this type of an assignment, and here's how you would do this with a wiki. And then suddenly wikis are only used in that way, or blogs are only used in that way, or Twitter is only used in that way. There's also another, um, you know, question here about like using digital video and mobile devices and I I think that's important too. Like we we don't want to just say well you know if you're going to make a digital movie it's going to be a public service announcement or it's going to be a digital story. There are a variety of different types of digital products that they could make and so that's our job as teachers is to say you know what are the genres they need to explore, what are the purposes we're having them write for both academically and personally, and how can we use these tools in the most effective manner.
0: Adam asks, as a teacher researcher, I'd like to hear what Troy has to say about effective ways of logging data from teachers and students to be able to retrieve it. In other words, how do you archive your data? So I, I'm assuming that he's asking that kind of from the um,
1: perspective of a someone who does research with teachers. And so what I would say is that in my, my toolkit, <laughs> um, Pretty much anyone that I'm working for instance, I was just working with a colleague where um, we were doing a Skype conversation with her class and we had a collaborative Google Doc going at the same time And so I was on one screen, the Google Doc was on another screen, she was in the classroom with her students, they all had computers, they were all able to contribute to the Google Doc, she had a digital voice recorder running, I had Audio Hijack Pro running on Skype, um, I was you know so able to get and she had another assistant in the room just taking field notes on the whole thing and what was going on. so I mean the tools are in some ways you know same as they ever were, right? you know we're we're recording our observations we're just using a computer to do it, and we're using digital audio recording and video recording as compared to the other types of things. Um, so that's kind of how that works for me as a researcher. then you have all that data to go back to um. If you're thinking more particularly about um, you know, in the classroom, I think what's really powerful are using um, tools like Google Forms and inviting kids to fill out brief surveys or creating their own surveys and having them fill them out for each other. Um, inviting students to create screencasts where they will talk you through a project and say, here's why I did this, here's why I did that and using something like Jing that limits them to five minutes and they have to be really clear and concise. Um, buying some cheap audio recorders and having kids record conversations um, uh, from one another. Um, you know. And then of course just having computers there and able to um, be able to type and record notes and so forth. So I hope that uh,
0: helped answer that question in a couple different ways. Christina wonders, and this is Going to dive deep, I think. How can a teacher lead digital writing if they are not an expert in the digital format?
1: I think that's the million-dollar question for any type of teaching. Is um, you know, as many people in the series of conversations that you've had and advocates known for a long time, we're moving from that sage on the stage to guide on the side, and for some reason. I think there's still a perception in teaching that when we stand up in front of students, we have to know everything, and when we don't know everything, and especially when we don't know everything about the technology that we're trying to use, we get nervous and intimidated and worried, and I I mean... I do too. There are times where I stand up in front of my students and say, we're going to try something tonight with this new website or this new thing, and I have no idea if it's going to work, and if it fails, we're going to learn from it just as well as if it succeeds, and I I think that that's the, the point that we have to make is that Um, with our kids, we can probably work together to figure out how most of the tools work, but the value you add as a teacher is that you're a reader, you're a writer, you're a literate person, you're someone who knows something about how our brains work and how literature is important and rhetorical moves in writing and that's what you can offer to kids so they may be able to figure out how to put all the transitions into their digital story but you can talk to them about the meaning behind that and why they might choose to use that transition over the other so don't get too worried about the particular technologies just jump right in
0: and give them a try and trust that it will work We've had this discussion over and over uh, in the series on um, you know, trying to teach in a 21st century style, but not actually working in a 21st century environment. And so I think the challenge uh, you know, exists at so many levels. Uh, Infomeister wants to know, I remember using texting as a method to assist students with note taking. How do you view the relationship between texting generation and their tools with practical application? Well, I
1: think that there's a lot of evidence to support the idea that back-channeling is becoming pretty common, not only at kind of ed tech conferences that we all attend, like EduCon and ISTE and so forth, but um, in classrooms. I mean, the New York Times just had a piece on back-channeling just a couple of weeks ago. And so uh, if we truly are interested in inviting student voices and the ones that may not normally speak out in face-to-face situations, then there are a whole number of um, tools. I mean, obviously, Twitter, and you can set up, you know, private spaces like that, and I'm losing them all off the top of my head, but There's like today's meet and some of these other things. Uh, Polling, inviting students to do polls right at the beginning of class or during class even to check their comprehension. Um, I I think that there are a lot of ways to get students involved in the conversation. The trick, of course, is not to be gimmicky about it. Like, oh, I'm going to do poll everywhere every day. Or, oh, I'm going to have a Twitter back channel every day just because that's the cool thing and that's what kids want to do. But to really make it meaningful and to, to then rely on that, like to pull from the back channel and say, you know, someone just said something that complements what someone else said. It makes our role as a teacher even more important, more, um, you know, worthwhile as a facilitator because kids are not going to be able to pull out all those nuances that you might have as you're able to watch these different channels of conversation and think about the text that you're reading and so forth. So um, yeah, I think that there's a lot of opportunity
0: to use those tools. I wondered, maybe a good question is how to start a movement so that we can bring teachers into the digital fold. Are you seeing that anywhere, Troy? Are you seeing uh, organizations or districts or schools that are doing a really good job in that way? Well, I
1: certainly think there are. I mean,
0: I'm going (laughs) to just
1: share my bias right here and say I think the National Writing Project. by far is one of the best literacy organizations, and it, it, it just in general, but also in terms of looking really carefully at how digital technologies have affected teaching practice and student work. So National Writing Project, for sure. I know that the, some of my colleagues here have posted the the links to Digital Is, and that would be a wonderful resource. Um, you know, there are some really Great schools and districts, and I, at risk of naming any, I'm gonna probably not name name any right now because I'll forget more than I than I remember at the moment. But yeah, clearly there's some practices that are emerging as people are going one to one or bringing mobiles in and so forth. And I I think that the the main point is that. We, we really just want to keep focusing on the writing. We want to help um, students understand that uh, writing in the 21st century is changing, but it, it really is still about um, understanding purpose and audience and um, getting a message across. And I really appreciate you pulling up this last slide here. Um, these. Um, words and phrases were ones that uh, we collected in the process of writing because digital writing matters. We gathered them from a number of the ed tech kinds of um, standards and when you look at across all of these, these are all things that can be accomplished with writing Mm -hmm. and whether you're using a pencil and paper, a keyboard, a video camera, whatever tool you're using, you can think about how to help students accomplish all of these goals with digital writing.
0: Troy, this has really been fun. I so appreciate your coming on the show. I'm clapping for you now. You can clap for Troy by using the clapping hand at the bottom of your participant window. At the end of the school year, you brought 70 people out, and that's a terrific testament to the value of what you're doing. So I'm going to go back to your slide so we can show the books again. I'll go back to this one for you. The Digital Writing Workshop and Because Digital Writing Matters. Our guest has been Troy Hicks. Thank you, Troy. Thank you so much, Steve. I really enjoyed the conversation. I did as well. Really terrific evening. So uh, please consider coming to one of our upcoming shows next Tuesday. Larry Ferlazzo on his new book, Helping Students Motivate Themselves, Denise Pope on Thursday on her book, Doing School. Thanks so much for joining us tonight or today, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, we'll get that recording up um, in a couple of hours. Thanks. Have a great night, everybody, and thanks again, Troy.